Your support of the Candid Frame over the past 12 years has been invaluable to us. You have not only helped us produce over 400 episodes, but your donations directly helped us to create the Candid Frame app and making it available for free. We are now proud to announce the release of a new way for you to listen to TCF. We have released a new skill that is compatible with Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. Using voice commands, you can listen to the latest episodes, jump forward and back, and if you stop listening partway through an episode, it will remember where you left off. And like the Candid Frame app, it's free for users in the U.S. and Canada. In the coming months, the skill will be available in other countries. And I'll let you know when those become available. You can help and continue to support the work that we do here by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. You not only help us to meet our cost of production, but provide us the means to improve the quality of the show and do so much more. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. This is about X, and this is the candid frame. When you look at the work of certain photographers, a strong sense of how they see the world comes through. This is often described as style but it often can be confused with technical things like how they use strobes or how they post-process images in Photoshop. What I'm talking about is more sensibility, a point of view. This can be more difficult to discern, but we often know it when we see it. I got a sense of that while looking at the work of Alex D. Rogers, a young photographer living and working in Atlanta, Georgia. I came upon his images while looking through a magazine that I picked up at my local gym. His portraits of African-American men really resonated with me. And as I explored more of his photographs on his website, I grew even more intrigued by not only how this young man photographs people, but how he sees them. All right. Well, Alex, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for making time for me today. Thank you for uh, for having me. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, I was at the I was at the gym and I picked up a copy of Chill magazine, and I saw the spread that they did on your Crown series. I was like, oh, these are really interesting. And then I looked at your website, and I was really excited at what I found there. I mean, your your work is really quite amazing. Thank you. I um I actually have not yet seen that uh, that spread. I uh, I was wondering how you found me, actually. Yeah, that that, that was it. Yeah, I'm. Su- it's no surprise that uh, the magazine hasn't gotten it to you yet. I, I worked yeah. in the magazine industry for a while, so I know that can be a headache sometime. But I'll say that it, you know it's uh, it's a nice spread. So, but you know, I looked at your work and, and you know the story behind a lot of your work, and I felt like hey, I want to talk to this guy and learn a little more about about him. One of the things that really struck me when I was doing my research for you is that you you kind of do did the reverse of what a lot of photographers do, which is a lot of them go from stills into multimedia. But for you, it was the reverse. You started into in multimedia and video, and then you transitioned into stills. T- t- tell me about that. Uh, well, so my undergrad work was in audio and video production and i was fortunate enough to go to or to be in a program where our instructors were 
like practicing in the in the music industry. So we got a lot of real life experience. And um, I figured out pretty early on that the music business wasn't for me. Hmm. And luckily enough, there was a video sort of minor in that same program. And I was able to just load in a bunch of video program or video classes to uh, sort of fulfill that part of the degree requirements. And that's how I ended up in uh, on, on the video side. I my, A lot of my earlier influences are like, you know, music video and uh, the look of that because you know, it was a logical uh, progression from music, which I was interested in to begin with. And how did you transition into an interest in still photography? Ah, oh, well, so I... Before I graduated, I, I started working in a in a museum arena, uh, doing a lot of like exhibition graphics, and I just sort of that that helped, I guess, inform my like how much I value uh, stills, how much how powerful stills could be, and I sort of enjoyed or came to enjoy the challenge of you know, sort of telling a whole story in a fraction of a second as opposed to you know, 24 frames a second for 90 minutes or whatever. And just sort of logistically, it was, it was a lot easier. It was a lot more, it was a lot more feasible for me to produce high quality work without having to invest as much in what would be required to, you know, make high quality video content at the time. This was, you know, we were still doing that tape and that sort of deal when this, when I, when I was learning. So, it was just a lot easier to do and sort of a natural progression. I, I was reading that it was a concert that really kind of spurred you to, to really want yeah. to pick up a camera. Tell me about that. So there was, so I, I had sort of like point and shoots and I would like rent cameras for, you know, smaller sort of personal projects. But there is an artist by the name of uh, Jenna Monet who had done, she was sort of working this sort of market or the the Atlanta market in, in terms of sort of getting her sound out and she had done several concerts around the city um, that I'd been to and sort of leading up to the release of her debut so her major label debut she did a two-night show at a venue here and just sort of on a whim I um, decided that I would order a legitimate camera and uh, and photograph that show and I really had no clue what I was doing. I probably, you know, was shooting JPEG in, you know, some automatic mode, but I fell in love with it. And, you know, that's to this day, artists are my favorite thing to shoot. I love photographing artists of any kind. So how did that, that the photographing of the concert sort of lead you into portraiture as opposed to doing live events? Um, I think after the the concert I, I sort of tried a lot of different things I did um, because at that point there weren't many people it, just in terms there wasn't a big pool of, of subjects so I did a lot of architecture and just sort of getting my feel for the, the camera itself which is probably I guess in hindsight better because I got a lot more comfortable with the like the technical aspects without having to you know, bore people with hours of sitting through me figuring out what I was doing with the camera. So I did architecture. I did, I tried, you know, fashion and, and that sort of deal. Uh, but for me, I just like the connection and just sort of the ability to tell people's 
stories and specifically as it relates to artists i like helping them get their get their vision across in a photograph if i can so you're in you're in atlanta so were you already producing still work when you moved to atlanta or did that come afterwards give me a sense of the timetable uh so i moved here my my family moved here when i was in elementary school so i pretty much grew up here. Um, I'm from Buffalo, New York, but we moved here when I was younger and I went to elementary, middle, high school and college here. So yeah, that I was already here and again, a lot more interested in making music uh, as a like a, a musician, like a instrumentalist, uh, a composer, and then sort of figured out that the commercial music industry wasn't for me. And then that was how we sort of made our way from video into into still sort of by default because it was the easiest thing to do at the time with the resources that I had. Were you already jacked into the community? Did, did that make it easier to access people to serve as your initial subject matter? No, not at all. Um, it, it must have been about maybe four years ago where I decided that you know, I've been trying fashion and, and any and other types of photography. I sort of decided that artists uh, were what I liked. And I started to photograph just I would reach out to local artists and ask if if I could photograph them just to sort of build a, a body of work that was similar to what I, I wanted to end up doing. And it sort of snowballed from there. People who I uh, photographed during those sort of experimental stages would come back when it was time to promote a project and I'd get hired and then there'd be sort of word of mouth in, in that deal. Yeah, from what I was reading is that you would, uh, or you or you may still do this, and you can probably clarify it for me, is that you would do it, you wouldn't charge them, but you made you had, you had made it clear that, that you were, were providing them a license, that there was a value to, to the work that you were doing, and that was an important right. part of your collaboration with them. Tell me about that, because I think a lot of photographers do stuff for free, and they never consider establishing a value for their work, even if they're, they're not charging for it up front. I've got to say, um, having worked in that museum arena for so long and sort of seeing those licensing agreements that would come through for works that we would be displaying really um, sort of helped form that, that or inform me about like the value of of the work and so I was able to um, or I have been able to use that sort of knowledge to help you know in my personal in my personal in my uh, business work did you find that that people took you a little more seriously as a result of that and that when the opportunity did come to get a paid gig that they did see you as a professional rather than someone who had done something for free uh, not necessarily. I think, um, well, what what has been my experience is that people enjoy the work. The people that I'd worked with before enjoyed the work. So that was what brought them back. But mm-hmm. um, I, in, in terms of, you know, licensing and rights and that sort of deal, most people, it wasn't a concept that they were familiar with that much, but uh musicians for example who sort of work in that model a lot got it Hmm. it it would be it is always a lot easier to explain it to musicians sort of in 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 terms of how they might license uh composition or so it's, it's easier to draw that parallel for them 
but most most people are sort of caught off guard because it's not a concept that they're as familiar with. Yeah. So, so what kind of license would you provide the, these people if you know if if they weren't if you weren't doing it for compensation? What were? Uh, well, so I would uh, for for most people, I would. I mean, and it's it would just sort of spell out that you know they could use the images to create new content for you know a certain amount of time and there would be like specifics about like uh, attribution and the what i have what i've sort of learned is that with those uh with those projects people or musicians tend not to return to the images after a certain amount of time to create new content just because their image changes so often mm-hmm. so it's never as much of it uh, or i guess policing it isn't as much of an issue on that end but yeah it was just you know the amount of time the way it could be used and and a big thing was attribution since there wasn't any compensation early on so if they used it in social media or if it ended up in print or something like that you would have to be identified as the photographer right right so you know when you're when you're building a career, it's really kind of essential to be really careful about who you choose to collaborate with, who you choose to work with. Tell me about the process of trying to figure out, okay, who, because you only have a certain amount of time, you know, during the course right. of, a, of a day. So you just can't be shooting for everyone who just wants, for, you know, free work or, or relatively inexpensive work. So how did you sort of figure out, okay, who am I going to approach? Was it largely from, you know, uh, admiration for what they were doing musically, for example? Uh, not, not so much uh, their work because... I, I sort of understood earlier on that the the quality and the style of uh, work that people would produce might not always mesh well with what my personal tastes were. So that was so and that was that's never been a consideration. The really early projects had a lot to do with just sort of how viable it, it would be in terms of like, like marketing if there was a large enough following for this to translate to lots of exposure for me, mm, then okay. that would be something that I would be more likely to uh, attach myself to. And then, of course, it, how they present would – I mean, I, I wouldn't want to – sort of align myself with things that are outside of my uh, like like things that I don't agree with like if it were like sexism or homophobia or racism like things like that I didn't align myself with but just in terms of quality of work and the type of work I wasn't as concerned with that I, I prefer working with up-and-coming artists in general just because of the the type of energy that's that's there it's always cool to be able to deliver content that's really great for them i'm sure or i've seen i've I've heard conversation or people have told me about you know how they wish they you know started out of the gate with really high quality imagery and it's i don't know i think it's cool to be able to deliver that for people to sort of help level the playing field visually you know, what I really like about your work is that it doesn't seem come off as posed. I, I've, I've seen a lot of portfolios of people who work with artists or, or, or with models, and there's a certain sameness to them, just because I think a lot of these people sort of 
model themselves off of what they've seen before in print or advertising or something. But it seems like you're able to pull something genuine out of your subjects. And I wonder how, about that process, because I think it can be difficult, especially in, in a society where we're so inundated with imagery that people are basically taking their cues in terms of how they appear in front of the camera based on the other things that they've seen. So tell me about how you sort of evoke something that's really genuine from your subjects, considering that that's the, you know, one of the big obstacles that any photographer faces. Uh, well, I mean, one of the first things I say when we get, you know, on the set is that I, I'm not really into things that look superposed. So I really appreciate that you recognize that because I wasn't sure whether or not that comes across or not. Um, but yeah, I just, what I, what I like to do, and I think it was something I read that I think Richard Avedon said about, you know, just sort of, you know, setting the stage and letting them play. I, um, I try to stay out of the way, uh, like the light, we don't fuss with the lights Everything is set. I don't want any of the technical things to get in the way of of the performance. And uh, I guess I've been really lucky in that people, artists, performers, a lot of them sort of thrive in that environment. Mm-hmm. So more or less, I, I try to set the stage before they get there. And then once they're on the set, just let them go and get a, whatever they need in the environment to make it conducive to their performance. We try to accommodate, but I just sort of try to stay out of the way and wait for that right moment. So paint me a picture. Can you give me an example of someone that you've shot recently and what exactly, how does that play out? I mean, are you playing music? Are they singing? Are they, I mean, exactly what would I be seeing if I was in the studio with you? Uh, If you're in the studio, you would see, I mean, it's pretty bare bones. It's, uh, the seamless and the lights. I sort of shoot in a fashion style in that we don't really, there's not too much going on in terms of like lighting. I like to do, at most I might do three lights. Um, but for the most part, there's like a one light setup with maybe some sort of fill. Uh, coming from a scrim, I like to shoot really soft and then add like some punch later. So just massive modifiers. And uh, we've, you know, there's always music blasting throughout the whole space, the, the studio area and the dressing area, restrooms and everything. Um, there was, well, pretty recently I shot an artist who uh, now lives in, uh, I want to say South Carolina. You know, a lot of times they, uh, artists will come with, with friends and that energy helps. I do sort of encourage people to bring, you know, some people with you that you're comfortable with so that they can feed off each other's energy. This particular person we've shot he was one of the one of the first artists that I shot a few years ago, when I uh, was sort of, sort of figuring it out. So we have a pretty, I guess, comfortable working relationship. And you know, I you know we play music, and I told him, to, you know, to to do his thing. And you know, we're pretty comfortable, like I said. So it wasn't, you know, we weren't pulling teeth there. There was an artist I shot. A co- I'm sorry, an actor I shot a couple of weeks ago uh, in the studio, uh, and we were just doing sort of you know, portraits. And, um, you know, I might throw some scenarios out there for for them to play off of their actors. That tends to work pretty well. I don't know. It's not, I don't, there's not a lot of really specific direction. It's normally pretty broad. I might uh, put them in a certain shape and then let them sort of go emote, perform from there. Mm -hmm. But not, 
nothing too specific. Yeah, because I was looking through your photographs on your website, and I was really, I was really taken by the sort of the nuance of the expressions, the body language, the gestures uh, that you were able to evoke. Because I, I didn't see sort of like a regular pattern of okay, yeah, there's there's that particular pose, or there's there's that particular look. And I, I don't do a lot of that work my, myself. I do some street portraits uh, for, for the most part, but it's it's still uh, I always find that trying to basically create the opportunity for something real to happen uh, is is a skill that I really admire in a lot of people that do portrait photography especially well, and I, and I count you among those. Thanks. That's um. That's that's what I try to do. So it's really cool to hear that that uh, that it comes across that way. Um, you, you know, you photograph not only performers but a lot of people of color, and I know that that is a really important thing for you in terms of your goals as a photographer. Tell me a little more about you know what what your idea is behind how you portray people of color uh, with your camera. Uh, I guess. Uh, well, so, I mean, I try. I just I want to normalize them in or us in 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 images. I don't I've got like I've got these reference folders, picture or uh, folders full of images that I've been collecting for you know 5 or 10 years now that I you know, pull off the internet or out of tear and just sort of you know like inspiration if it's lighting or color or you know whatever and at some point not too long ago I Sort of came to the realization that most of if I, you know, if I'm building a mood board or something to send to a client, there aren't a lot of people of color to choose from in that uh, in that folder, and it's not from you know lack of me you know looking for that, uh, but it just it it's not very widely it's not represented that well I should say it's not that diverse of a pool to begin with to pull from Mm -hmm. and so so there's that and what yes in you know 50 years or whatever I just I want to be able to contribute to someone else's reference pool and have you know just offer a lot of different non-stereotypical almost artful representations of people of color try to avoid over sexualization and you know just ways that we tend to be portrayed uh in excess so we try to avoid that at all costs Hey, I'll be teaching a series of workshops where I teach my personal approach to street photography throughout the year. I'll be in San Francisco in June at Street Photo SF and New Orleans in October. I also have just announced two more workshops, including one in New York City in October and one in Paris in September. You'll find links for all of these in the show notes and the Candor Frame website. Sign up today and I hope to see some of you there. Tell me about the the Crown series because that is that is the the series the personal project that really sort of piqued my my attention in the first place. Yeah, um, well, it sort of started out as just as responding to 
things that I'd seen or, or change that I'd noticed, it, it, which was guys sort of not being, or I should say, uh, it started out as, you know, me responding to images that I would see of people from around the world. Really, this was sort of um, at the height of Tumblr, so you could sort of peek into lots of people's in lots of different corners of the world and see how people are representing themselves pretty easily. Um, and there were a lot of different hairstyles that, you know, I didn't really see that much of a variety of in guys when I was growing up. So I decided to photograph it, uh, to photograph as many different styles as I could. And just, I mean, not as a, a statement of any sort, just sort of documenting what, what I saw, but, I mean, I don't know if documenting is the right word. It's definitely not documentary photography, but I wanted to make a record of it uh, in my way. And that was what I did. And after a while, um, like when guys would end up having to, uh, one of the guys had to cut their hair in order to keep a job. Um, and another ended up having to cut his in order to get a job. And that, it, it sort of became... It started to represent more of like attachment and like the struggles people have uh, or, or what challenges people are faced with as it relates to their hair and how people view them because of their hair. Yeah, I, I found it really fascinating because there have been a lot of um, uh, projects, films that have focused on black women's hair yeah. uh, famously um, Chris Rock did a documentary some years ago which I thought was pretty pretty insightful right. but, but there hasn't been so much on black men's hair at least that I'm aware of and looking at your photographs it really gave me um, a greater context for how men of color are looked at not just because of the skin tone but by the choice of hairstyles because of the culture that we live in I think that that you know black men are especially hyper aware of their how they're perceived by others I mean you just you have to be yeah. growing up here and as much as clothes are a way of sort of affecting that hair is, is especially is especially so whether it's you're wearing dreads or whether it's cropped or whether it's shaved or whether it's twisties and looking at your photographs I as you said I realized the the wide diversity of hairstyles that are, are available to people now but how much that is a statement of uh, of identity and, and maybe at times even of politics as as you photographed these variety of different men's how did all of those ideas sort of filter in your way of thinking how did it affect your way of thinking about the role of hair in in a black man's identity uh well i mean i have to say that just as a person who's had a number of, as, as a black male who's had a few different hairstyles ranging from like a low cut all the way to longer dreads i it i related to it and it was i mean it was really just a fun project in in the beginning and once i started you know once the, the individual subjects uh there's a photograph of a subject Whose, whose name is Sid, he's got really long dreads in the, in the portrait. And at one point he ends up cutting his hair. And there's another guy who also has dreads. It's sort of like a, a mohawk who, um, if I understand correctly, ended up having to 
to cut those to to keep a job and just sort of sharing these those stories with people when they would see the images and, and respond sort of favorably just because they, they they would you know they like the images and then once they heard the stories behind the guys and sort of um, what ended up happening after the photograph was was made it, it really wasn't until I experienced their responses that I started to think about it differently mm-hmm. um, and as I say in the in the in the chill piece I um, this was at the height of the rise in the public K or in the um, in the in, in coverage of uh, black men being killed in uh, or by uh, police officers a few years back in sort of the rise of, of Black Lives Matter, so that was the political or that was the that was the environment that this is all taking place in. Um, so that all sort of contributed to I guess the way I view the project now and ultimately led to me sort of pausing it. Just because it it, it it became really heavy, mm. and I sort of you know I it, the the subjects when when I would approach them, I would let them know that this would be like a long term project. We might return, and um, there's one one subject who I've photographed several times, uh, starting out for the this project. the The plan was to return and every few years and sort of see you know how they're wearing it now and I sort of just because of how how heavy that was at the time I, I pressed pause on the project when you say it was heavy it, it was emotionally loaded for you or for your subject matter for me and I would assume so my my deal was I didn't want to make light of it I, I, I at a point, I still feel the need to celebrate the the diversity and, and, and that sort of deal, but I didn't want to trivialize. At a point, it became, it, it started to feel like I was just sort of making these pretty pictures and uh, we were dealing with sort of real issues mm-hmm. and it, it's deeper than, you know, pretty pictures of guys' hair. So that was sort of, that was the, the thought process toward the, toward the end of the project. Yeah, that's really interesting, um, you know, because I think that when I think of, you know, photographs of people of color, um, so much of what's been seen has been along the lines of photojournalism, documentary photography, especially during the, uh, the better part of the 20th century, where, you know, blacks were often photographed uh, under less than ideal circumstances. Um, their, their poverty or crime or different aspects of their uh, their lives are being um, documented, even by photographers who were well-intentioned, who were trying to sort of demonstrate, you know, the, the lives of people who were uh, who had immigrated to Detroit and the working conditions there during the, the big migration from the South or when they were documenting uh, poverty in, in the South during, during the age of Jim Crow. Um, but then... As a sort of a counterpoint to that, we have a generation of photographers who are basically using the aesthetics of fashion and portraiture to render beautiful photographs of people of color. And that somehow that, that, that contrast becomes more than just a difference of, of aesthetics, but it also becomes, um, loaded emotionally as you just sort of indicated in which you know you're taking these photographs and 
because you were creating these beautiful photographs that that derive from a, a an aesthetic of fashion, it, it, it inevitably becomes loaded with you know emotional and political you know perceptions. Um, for me, that's that's really kind of interesting, and that's something I had really given thought to until now. Uh well, I mean, I guess in practice, that's where I've been, but I've never, I mean, I've never been able to articulate it that way. And I, I appreciate that. That's, um, that's encouraging actually. No, so thank you. Yeah. I, I really would encourage you to do, to continue to do this project. Cause I think it's really sort of fascinating, especially when considering that you're bringing this, this aesthetic that is really beautiful imagery, but that's done in, in a way that doesn't seem contrived at all. But let's talk about sort of the business end of it, because, you know, Atlanta has has been a uh, a really thriving town for, for a, a while now, especially culturally in terms of the music scene and artists. And But let's talk about your, your role as a photographer, because I know there are a lot of photographers in that town. Yeah. So how do you sort of sort of distinguish yourself, uh, you know, as compared to your competition and, and eke out a living as a, as a photographer who wants to create the kind of work that he wants to create? Uh it's not it's not an active thing. Again, I keep going back to the having started out in that museum environment and having that point of view or the seeing the way people who appreciate visual media, like the value that they place on it and how that has sort of framed how I I mean, you know, for example, there is a um, I know you, you've recently done. Uh, a cover, uh, an interview with uh, Joel Marowitz, and we've got a Joel Marowitz piece here in 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 uh, this museum that I did some work in. And what was cool was, or what has been interesting, just sort of as a way to inform how I handle business, is being able to witness, you know, that transaction from you know the curator at the museum deciding that they want to use this image to, you know, the, at the point where the print arrives here and just sort of watching every step of the way how that business business gets handled uh that was i mean that was invite that knowledge that i've gained in that environment has been really invaluable that's not something that i learned in school and you know for uh photographers who i come in contact with who you know studied photography in school had internships in proper studios that is something that isn't taught so I'm, you know, really fortunate on, on that. And just in terms of separating myself from the pack again, it's not something that I actively do. Um, I've been really fortunate in that I don't. I'm able to be really selective about the projects that I take on. And I guess more than anything, I, I, I've tried to develop a vocab, a, a, like a, some sort of visual vocabulary that I stick to to sort of differentiate the work itself that way. I'm not very interested in putting myself out there. Um, so, you know, it's for the most part, what you see, if you, you know, if you look for me, is, is just my work. Mm-hmm. So I just, I stay out of the way and try to let the work speak for itself. And, you know, a lot of it is word of mouth, really, uh, clients. A lot of my clients come from uh, you know, other clients or, you know, past work that we've already done. So are you working directly with 
mostly uh, performers and you know and their managers to produce imagery for their for their PR and their promotions. Are you working with agencies at all? Uh, I do work with a couple, or I should say, I have worked with. I don't have like long term contractual relationships with agencies or anything like that. But there are there are agents that send people my way. Um, that has been pretty cool. That's really been over the past maybe year and a half that I sort of since I've sort of pivoted or, or my intention to, you know, mainly uh, be artists and, and, and actors and that sort of deal. I don't, I, since I prefer up and coming uh, artists, there tend to be, there. there's not always that big machine that can be behind established artists so that's cool i sort of get to work directly with you know the the artists and we execute their vision there's not a lot of bureaucracy or anything like that that can come with big machines which Mm -hmm. it it can be cool it can be extremely rewarding but just in terms of energy uh we i i tend to work directly with artists mostly you you mentioned earlier about choosing subjects to work with that of particular concern was, you know, how much of a following they have. And since the use of the image is often associated with their social networks, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, what are the things that you need to do in order for you to, f- to successfully get a return on that? I mean, you mentioned in terms of getting a credit, but sometimes the credit can be as far as it goes. I mean, but you're trying yeah. to leverage it into paid opportunities and for referrals. So how do you, you know, once you've shot someone, you've produced the images and you provided them the imagery and you have the licensing, what's the stuff that you do on your end to make sure that, you know, that that investment in time and energy um, really provides you what you need? Also, at uh now I've sort of gotten to the point where the, I guess if we're, if we're talking like business, business, mm-hmm. I've got a, you know, a certain amount that I might spend on uh, advertising or promotion, be it like, you know, paid uh, social media posts, like that sort of deal uh, directly with like the, the different social uh, media sites. And I know what it costs me to produce a shoot. So I would, uh, in a lot of cases, I'll, I mean, this sort of works out to maybe one shoot that uh, doesn't cost the subject uh, every two or three months. And so that's how the numbers work. And in terms of return on investment, it's not as easily quantifiable that way. I know that there are certain people who I collaborate with pretty often that almost always result in you know one more or two more bookings over a period of time than I would normally get so that that's a sort of a formula that I stick to a lot just with specific or collaborating with specific people but ultimately the the biggest reward for me is just generating content that is you know, 100% my vision and being able to display that, be it on the website or my own social media for people to get a better feel of, you know, what I like to do. So for the most part, as long as I can create content that is in line with my goals, then 
I'm okay if that doesn't translate directly to you know more bookings immediately because I'll be able to use that as a tool you know f- until the end of time to show what I'm capable of and what I like to do. You, you mentioned the word vision and you, you described the sort of the setting in which you bring your subject in to, to photograph. Tell me a little bit about the vision, the ideas that you have, considering you're not really doing conceptual photographs or you're bringing a lot bunch right. of props and a bunch of, you know, styling and stuff like that. You're really trying to allow that person to sort of be themselves in front of the camera. So how does vision fall into play when you're really not, you know, coming up with these, you know, uh, this grand set, you're not doing something like Annie Leibovitz does, you know, where she basically creates this whole stage onto which she places her subject. Right. Um, well, I mean, in that, this is where sort of being able to do those, uh, those shoots for people where they don't pay sort of come into play. What I enjoy the most is, I mean, I, I call myself a minimalist. And as you might see looking through, my images, sort of as you uh, just alluded to, I don't really do conceptual work. And the portraits are, I mean, it's really just a person. Mm-hmm. And the vision, for example, I, I described, I recently shot an, uh, an actor a couple of weeks ago. And our vision was that we were going for sort of that, uh, I mean, we wanted it sort of raw and emotional and we wanted it to look like we were shooting for the cover of the Hollywood, not the cover, but for, you know, the Hollywood Reporter or Variety or something like that. And um, and a lot of times we, we will communicate vision in terms of, it can be sort of like referential reference. In my case, it ends up a lot of times being film or fashion uh, photographers or editorial for overall look and feel. But uh, I mean, I don't know, it's not. There's not, like you said, it's not a complex, you know, set or anything like that. But the vision almost always is, you know, sort of raw, realistic, minimal, like distractions, uh, you know, them, whoever, whatever, whoever the subject is, you want to capture them. One of the interesting things I saw on your website is a multimedia piece. It's basically a sort of video portrait that these vertically oriented video portraits that are about maybe 30 seconds or something like that. Yeah. Um, those are fascinating. Tell me about the, the whole idea behind those and, and how are they used? Uh, so um, just, I guess, hearkening back to where I started in video, I got the urge to take advantage of the just the vertical format. So I try not to ever, that's sort of always my, my stipulation. The barriers that I set when I'm making these are that we, they'll always be vertical and I keep the camera still. Um, the point is for it to sort of look like a, a, a portrait of that's moving at some point. We, the, yeah, there's a really good, uh, system in place that uh, we all happen to have uh, in our in our pockets and in the form of Instagram stories and there's I think there's like a 15 second uh, maximum on those so that helps uh, narrow it down in terms of uh, length that we're going with um, so we use you know the 15 seconds got to be vertical we can't move the camera and then 
uh, someone who I collaborate with frequently on those, either myself or the subject will come up with some sort of idea that we want to try for the motion portrait and we try it out. And sometimes it works well, sometimes it, it doesn't. Well, that's sort of a new thing I've been trying recently. Yeah, it was really fascinating when I, I saw that because I've seen the, the, the stories on Instagram, but I had not seen the type of video portrait that you've, that you've been creating. And, and, and it's f- fascinating to see how photographers like you are really taking the platform and sort of reinventing it and doing something that goes beyond what what was initially conceived for the medium. Uh, just the idea of these video portraits that are vertical, because I, I can remember being very irritated at looking at any video that was done yeah. vertically as opposed to horizontally. But now it's interesting as people just sort of embracing it because they realize so much of what people do when they're taking in content is not on the television or even on the computer. It's the great majority of people are viewing these things on the phone. So it's, it's really cool to see how you can take that technology and embrace it to, to, to do something that is in line with your own aesthetic, with your own style, your own vision as a photographer. I appreciate that. I've actually, um, I'm considered or looking into ways to pull it, you know, off the phone, vertically orienting screens and just as a way to, because what happens with the, on the, on the platform, they don't live very long. Uh, They might live 24 hours or in a timeline, they, um, they'll, they'll live, you know, forever, but they sort of get pushed down. There are certain social media platforms where they sort of live on longer because people can, you know, repost them easily, like re reblog them easily. So that, that's cool. But, um, now sort of moving towards seeing how they function in uh, in the physical form, sort of in a vertically oriented screen that lives on a wall like a picture might if you framed it. Yeah. So that's fine. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Ah... Uh... There's a photographer here um, who is, uh, I think, a senior in college, but like beyond uh, in terms of like skill and like instinct. Uh, His name is Dante Maurice Brown. Um, He goes by Dante Maurice, and he's also a portrait photographer. He has a really specific point of view that I appreciate, and he's, uh, I don't know, I just, I really love his work. So I would recommend Dante Maurice. Well, Alex, thank you so much for making time for me today. It was a real pleasure to talk with you and learn so much about you and your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Alex for making time for us. To find out more about Alex and his work, visit alexdrogers.com. And you can show your support of The Candid Frame by writing a review in the iTunes store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, these reviews can lead people to us for the very first time, and that makes all the difference. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do it today. You can also show your support of the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help us to not only meet the cost of production, but also allow us to improve our podcast, YouTube channel, and website. 
Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal. You'll find links for both on the Candid Frame website or show notes. Thanks to Sean Bresney, John Krill, and Florian Ziegler for their recent contributions. Thank you for believing in the work that we're doing. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.